And in that simple theology of the body, we said six things. That uh, the body is a gift from God. The body is necessary. The body is good. In fact, it's very good. Number four, the body limits us blessedly. It's a blessing that the body limits us. And number five, the body puts us in a place blessedly. And so we are to be present in a place because that's what the body is designed to do. And number six, we saw how the body is central to the gospel, to every aspect of Jesus's earthly ministry from his incarnation to his crucifixion, or resurrection, ascension, and his rule in heaven. In the second sermon, we thought a little bit about why these truths about the body and practicing an embodied life can be difficult, doesn't necessarily feel natural to us. We are often wrestling with uh, sort of trying to live a disembodied life, trying to live as though there are no limits on our bodies, that we can be every place all the time, and so on. And we said the reason that we are tempted to that kind of disembodiment is because we have a disordered relationship with our bodies. That since the fall of Adam and Eve in sin, our relationship has been broken not only with God, but it's been broken with ourselves. It's been broken with our bodies. And we said that there were four factors that um, we saw from Genesis chapter 3 that contribute to that disordered relationship with our body. Falsehood. Desires, sinful desires in particular, shame, and fear. But what do we mean by disordered? Well, we were made in God's image and likeness, and we were made for his glory. That's part of what the body is for. That means God then, if we're made for his glory, made for in his image and likeness, likeness that means then that God uh, should be supreme in our lives. And that God should be the one who determines, as our God, as our ruler, as our Lord, the one who determines how we view our bodies, how we live in our bodies, and what we do with our bodies. So a well-ordered relationship will have God over us, over our bodies, determining how we see our bodies and live in them and what actions we take in them. Well, a, a disordered relationship breaks up that hierarchy, right? It moves God off the throne and some other lesser God, some idol then, is over us and, and is determining how we view our bodies and how we live in them and how we act in them. And again, last week we listed those four factors, falsehood, desire, fear, and shame. And each of those factors actually tempt us toward particular kinds of idols, so falsehood tempts us to the idol of autonomy, that we ourselves rule our body. Uh, desire tempts us to the idol of appetites, that our, our cravings and our wants, our lusts, rule us and determine what we do with our bodies and how we see them. Shame tempts us to, interestingly, idolize the body itself, to make an image or an idol of the body and to pursue you know, the perfect body, the rock-hard abs, and false worldly standards of beauty. Fear will cause us to idolize safety and to withdraw from others. And, and so these, 
these factors tempt us toward idols, and these idols have results in our lives. So autonomy tempts us to think we can do whatever we want. Uh, sinful appetites tempt us to think we should have whatever we want. Um, body image as an idol will tempt us to change or distort or do things to our bodies in order to measure up to that idol. And fear will tempt us to do everything we can to, to be safe, to overprotect ourselves and to withdraw from others. So before we talk about how it is that we reorient our lives, our bodies, in relationship to ourselves and to God, there's something I think we ought to, we ought to draw out and make, make plain. And that's this. Our relationship with God is inextricable from our body. Our relationship with God is inextricable from our body. In other words, what we think about and do with our bodies is tied unbreakably with how we get along with God. And how we get along with God, or not, don't get along with God, impacts what we will do with our bodies. This makes sense, right? Because, what, our bodies are temples in whom God lives by His Spirit. Our bodies are theaters from which God displays his glory, the glory of his presence and his rule in our lives. Our bodies tell the world who we are. They are a revelation. They tell the world who we are, but they also tell the world who God is to us by how we use them. So if we've been thinking about our relationship with God in, in solely vague, spiritual, non-physical terms, we've actually been distorting our relationship with God and distorting our relationship with our bodies. We, we've been practicing a kind of disembodied mysticism instead of a fully embodied Christianity. Well, let me put it this way. God in the gospel is restoring a properly ordered relationship between us and our bodies so that we may have a proper and full relationship with God himself. Embodiment becomes essential to experiencing God. If we flee our bodies, we will be fleeing the presence of the God who lives in us. And this is why we want to sort of think about how it is we reorient ourselves in a proper relationship to our bodies. And to that end, I want to give us four things to consider this morning. You might think of this, this sermon as the application to last week's sermon. So four things in application uh, to reorient our bodies or reorient ourselves in relationship to our body. Number one, we have to free our bodies from sin. We have to free our bodies from sin. We're going to see this in Romans chapter 6 primarily. Number two, we have to renew our minds. We have to renew our minds, as Romans 12, 2 says. Number three, we have to present our bodies to God as an offering. We have to present our bodies to God as an offering. That's Romans 12, too. 12 as well, verse 1. And finally, we want to treat our body as God's temple. We want to treat our body as God's temple. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. So let's think about that first point. We, we need to free our bodies from sin. That's the first thing we need to do in order to reorient, reorient our relationship to our bodies. But what, what do we mean, free our body from sin? Well, the body remains good despite the fall. 
However, like everything else in creation, the body has been affected by the fall. This is why we die. This is why we get sick. It's why something like the coronavirus is a, is a problem or even exists in the world because of the fall. This is why we uh, are born with disabilities or develop disabilities as we grow older and so on. We're used to thinking about the fall and those physical effects on the body. But, but more than that, the New Testament tells us that because of the fall and, and before we come to Christ, it's a sense in which the body belongs to sin. So Romans chapter 6, verse 6, look there with me. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I want to zero in on that phrase, the body of sin. It's a unique phrase. the only place in the New Testament that Paul or anybody else uses that phrase. I don't think he strictly means the flesh, the sin nature, because usually when he wants to say the flesh and use that as a metaphor for the sin nature, he uses that word flesh. But he reaches for this uh, unique construction here and says the body of sin. Now, by that, I do not think he means the sinful body, as if the body is the source of sin. Again, that gets us off into Gnosticism and some other kinds of errors. We might translate this to mean the body dominated or controlled by sin. That's the case with the old man who has been crucified. He was dominated or controlled by sin. And our physical bodies then will, notice this, always have a lord or a ruler. It's not as if the body can be without a ruler. It will either be God who rules or it will be sin. Now, the Lord or ruler of our physical body not only dominates the body, but that Lord or ruler lives in the body too. So look with me in Romans chapter 7, verses 22 to 23. Paul writes there, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, notice there, in my members, that means in his body parts, another law waging against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells, notice, in my members. Notice now, Paul is speaking in very physical terms about the body. He's saying, in my members, in my body parts, um, I notice that there's a war going on, there's a conflict. On the one hand, we've got um, what he calls the, the law of his mind, or the law of God, the same thing. The law of God, he delights in that, notice, in his inner being, in his soul, in his mind. But now against the law of God, which he delights in inwardly, is the law of sin, which is making war against the law of God. And notice where it lives. It dwells in the body. It dwells in the body. So this means then we've got to evict sin from our lives. We've got to evict it from our bodies. It, it is a, a ruler. It is a present, not an absentee landlord. It's not as though sin is sort of something out there, outside of us, that comes to us and sometimes trips us up. No, it's something that we're living with. It is called indwelling sin. Uh, and we've got to crucify it. We've got to bring it to nothing. That means we have to deal with our bodies. I'll give you an illustration. People, I think, very rarely listen to their bodies effectively. 
Have you ever had someone come to you and say, speaking about some sin they're tempted to or involved in, and you're trying to persuade them out of it? You ever had someone say to you something like, man, I got needs, or I have urges, or something like that? What they are describing is the body's demand for sin. What they're describing is the law of sin dwelling in their bodies, craving what it craves, wanting what it wants, insisting on what it, what it insists on. They are listening to their bodies when they say, hey, I've got urgent, but they're not listening to their bodies critically. They're not listening to their bodies as if they are meditating on the law of God inwardly. And so many people are, are pushed towards sin and dragged into sin and feel the power of sin because they're, they're listening to their bodies rather than preaching to their bodies. They're accepting the message of their body rather than challenging the message of the body. In other words, they're continuing to participate in a disordered relationship where sin is Lord of the body rather than Christ. So we have to stop listening to our bodies demand sinful things of us. You can imagine all kinds of illustrations of this, from, from gluttony to sexual morality to any number of things, to, to violence. We've got to subdue the body, bring it under the lordship of Christ. We have to evict sin. We have to free our bodies from sin's rule. A little word for that is simply sanctification. In this aspect of sanctification, we must submit our bodies to righteousness. That's really what Paul will go on to argue in Romans 6. So look with me in Romans 6, verses 12 to 13. The Bible says there, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Notice, in your mortal body, that is your physical, capable of dying body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves, your body now, to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Let's get down to verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? You see, we're the, we're the slaves of the one we present ourselves to. Well, verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So we've got a choice to make in this warfare. We've got to decide whose army we're fighting in, who... Who, who's our captain, who's our Lord, who's our ruler? Is it going to be sin leading to unrighteousness and then to death? Or is it going to be God leading to righteousness and sanctification? So when the body speaks to us, we have to ask, is this the voice of sin or righteousness? We have to consider, if I do this thing, the body seems to want. Will I be presenting myself as a slave to sin or presenting myself as a slave of Christ? We have to sort of actively think that through if we want to reorder our relationship with our bodies. And we have to think about it so constantly and actively until it becomes one of those ingrained habits uh, that reorders our life. 
So to reorder our relationship with our body, we have to free our body from sin. Number two, to reorder our relationship with our bodies, we have to also renew our minds. Remember, one of the factors that tempts us to a disordered relationship is falsehood. If we're going to fix falsehood, we've got to feed on truth. It's truth that reorders our relationship to our bodies. And, and in fact, we need so much truth, to use the language of Romans 12 too, we need to renew our minds by it. So look, look what the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. <laughs> there are two types of people who know this verse by heart. People who love their Bibles and those who have been beaten up by the world, who know how important it is to be renewed and transformed. Notice in the first part of this verse, the Bible makes it clear that the world brings pressure. When it says the word conform there, that word carries with it the idea of being squeezed into a mold, being squeezed into a shape and a pattern that's determined by the world. Now, the fallen world system has patterns of thinking and behaving and feeling uh, that, that squeeze people into it, and those patterns are never God's patterns. The world is always in rebellion against God. So being squeezed into the mold of the world always breaks us, always hurts us, always disappoints us, and always dis distorts God's truth. If, if we're to think about ourselves uh, as people made in the image and likeness of God, it means we're already made for a mold. That mold is the image and likeness of God. That's the pattern that we fit into and that we flourish in. Well, the world is a whole bunch of other kinds of shapes. And that's why it breaks us to be squeezed into it. Instead, we must be transformed, the Bible says, by the renewal of our mind. Notice, as the verse goes on, so that we can prove that actually God's will is the good, acceptable, and perfect way to live, not the world's. We have to be transformed by this renewal so that we can prove God's way of flourishing is best. And when you transform something, you take it from one form to another. The prefix trans means change, form would be a shape or a body. So, for example, a, a caterpillar starts out as a crawling insect with a lot of legs. But through metamorphosis, it transforms into a winged, multicolored butterfly that flies. Or a tadpole. Tadpole begins life as a, a round body with a long, almost translucent tail. But through metamorphosis, it has a, a next stage where it has four little legs and a smaller body and a tail until finally it is transformed into a frog with four legs and no tail. That's transformation. In the same way, our minds need to be transformed through a process of renewal. The old patterns of thinking have to be changed into new patterns of thinking. The old code of the sinful soul has to be rewritten in the new code of Christ. And beloved, we're not talking about small adjustments 
on an existing pattern. That's modification, not transformation. We're talking about an entirely new way of thinking. It's the difference between putt-putt and golf. There are a lot of Christians who seem to me are trying to play 18 holes of golf only putting, only making small adjustments and tapping the ball alone. No, we, we, we need to now be swinging a driver. And through that driver, driving so long, not just to get down the, the fairway on that hole, but driving so long that we actually hit the ball onto a whole new golf course. That's transformation. And that's what happens through the renewal of the mind. We need an entirely new way of thinking that goes with the new man that is in Christ. The only sure way for that to happen, that kind of renewal and transformation, is to think God's thoughts after him. And the only way to think God's thoughts after him is to think the way the Bible requires us to. That's why 2 Timothy 1.13 says that we have to follow the pattern of sound words that we heard in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So the Bible gives us the pattern of sound words, which is the pattern of, of thinking God's thoughts. And it's following that pattern that renews our minds and transforms our lives. So what, how do we apply that? Well, we need to be people who do seven things. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Sing the Bible. Pray the Bible. Obey the Bible. And share the Bible. We need to be people who are people of the book, who center our lives on the book and, and, and deep fry our lives in the scripture. And if we're going to reorder our relationships with our bodies, then we have to know that part of what these verses sort of build on is the assumption that there is a, a soul-body connection, that what happens with the mind impacts the body. So then we want to be people who take good care of our minds if we also want to take good care of our bodies. What you feed your mind, what I feed my mind, will in turn rule our bodies. We don't want to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're so clever that, that we can give our minds all kinds of entertainments without it affecting us, all kinds of ideas without it affecting us. It will affect us. It, it will shape our ideas and shape our desires and eventually shape our actions. And people often ask, for example, if Christians can participate in certain forms of, of music or movies. And often the question sort of gets us drug off into the weeds of legalism and debates about freedom. Perhaps it's better to ask a different question. Perhaps it's better to ask would you like to one day find yourself doing the things you see in those movies or hear in that music? Because if those things become your pattern of thinking, they will also become your pattern of behavior. So we want to take good care of our minds if, in fact, we want to reorder our relationship to our bodies. We want to feed ourselves God's word that will change the pattern of our thinking. And that change pattern based on the truth of God's word will reorient us to our bodies in a way that honors body, it honors God in a way that God designs. So, first two things, we want to free our bodies from sin, we want to renew our minds, 
Number three, we want to present our bodies to God. Romans 12, verse 1. It's interesting, when we think of Romans 12, 1 and 2, I think most people's minds go pretty quickly to Romans 12, verse 2. You renew your mind, right? And I think that's fine. But it's interesting how we just gloss over the body in verse 1. I think that emphasis on the mind from verse 2 reveals our tendency toward a disembodied practice of Christianity. So we need to go back to where the Bible starts in Romans 12, verse 1, and think about what it says there about the body. So look there, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There are lots of things we can say about this verse, but what I wish us to see right now is that true spiritual worship involves the body. New Testament worship involves our making our bodies, now listen, a living sacrifice, an offering to God. The body's offering, the Bible says here, is our spiritual worship. Not quiet times, not evangelism, not raising your hand and closing your eyes during the service as we sing, not spiritual gifts and so on. All those things are good. All those things are important. They have their place. They are fine. But the Bible says the body offered to God as a living sacrifice. That's our worship. So when we worship by offering our body to God, we actually smash all those idols that we talked about last week. We offer our bodies as a sacrifice to God. We, we, for example, we do not claim that our bodies belong to us absolutely in the false worship of autonomy. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. We do not, deserve, we do not serve the desires of the body. When we offer our body as living sacrifice to God, we do not allow shame to entice us into worshiping um, the perfect body image or false worldly ideas of beauty. And if we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, then we, we don't serve fear and safety. We serve God himself who made our bodies and who resurrected. So genuine worship, spiritual worship of the Romans 12, 1 type, smashes the idols that disorder our relationship with our bodies and begins to put us back into proper alignment with God. We offer our entire physical selves up to him. And that bodily offering puts us back in the ordered position God designed. So this becomes a kind of declaration for us. This becomes a kind of confession of faith for us that our bodies belong to God, and we offer it back to him. I love the Heidelberg Catechism, especially the very first question in that catechism, which goes something like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And in the first part of the answer starts this way, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the way gospel people talk. 
I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's my only comfort in life and death, that I am his and he is mine. He's purchased me with his blood and all that I am, body and soul, has been redeemed and belongs to him. That's the Christian hope. That's the Christian joy. And that's the, that's the reality that God offers every person in the gospel of his son. It's what Jesus came into the world to do, to buy us back from sin, to buy us back from slavery to unrighteousness, to set us free in Christ by making us now slaves to Christ. He redeems us, not only our souls, but he redeems our bodies too, so that we belong to him by his shed blood and are cleansed by that blood and are reconciled to God and are made his through faith. And that's the free offer that that God makes to every creature, every human being, through Jesus his Son. He calls us to receive that offering by, by repenting and trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior. And when we do that, part of what we're doing is we're offering our bodies to him. All that we are, we're offering ourselves back to God as living sacrifices. What, what's stunning about our bodies in this offering is that the Bible says here that our bodies are holy and acceptable to God as living sacrifices. Because of God's mercies and of Christ having purchased us by our blood, then, then the goodness of our bodies are reaffirmed, even to the extent of being offerings to God. And to understand this more clearly, uh, all it does is ask ourselves the question, what quality of sacrifices did God only accept in the Old Testament? If you were an Old Testament Israelite bringing an offering to God in the temple, a bull, a goat, or so on, it had to be an offering without blemish, without stain. Those were the only offerings holy and acceptable to God. Animals without blemish or defect. Paul is pulling on that same Old Testament imagery, and he's saying, in the gospel mercies of God, your body and my body become holy and acceptable to God. We are living sacrifices, offerings, our bodies, that are without blemish and without stain. So the Father in the gospel, once again, welcomes our bodies as very good. Our bodily offering pleases him. Now, if your body and my body is acceptable and holy to God, why would it not be acceptable to us? If God is pleased to accept our bodies, then on what legitimate grounds can we be so displeased with them that we would reject them? If an ordered relationship with our bodies involves our taking God's view of our bodies, then we have to rehearse to ourselves, preach to ourselves, that, that our bodies are holy and, yes, acceptable, just as they are. In other words, if we want to be our body's ally and advocate, not its enemy and critic. We want to view our bodies, bodies the way God does. And offering our bodies and knowing that he finds them holy and acceptable. Offering ourselves in a self-conscious way to this God helps us to reorient ourselves to our bodies in a proper way. Which brings us to number four. 
We want to treat our body as God's temple. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. We'll come back to this section in a subsequent sermon uh, to think about what it teaches us there. But right now, I just want to zero in on verse 19, where the Bible asks us this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In the context, Paul's dealing with sexual immorality. But the question really has far-ranging implications. The question assumes that we should already know that our bodies are the Holy Spirit's temple. God does not live in our souls by his spirit. He lives here in our body, the text says. Number two, this statement, this question is true for every Christian. It's not like some Christians are the temple of the spirit and others aren't. Every Christian and every Christian body is a temple for the spirit. And number three, the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in our bodies means then that our bodies bodies should be treated as holy, as, as sacred ground. We cannot do unholy things with or in the holy home of God. The Christians often refer to the body as a temple when they want to justify physical exercise or a diet or something. And while there's some legitimacy to that, that kind of application, the, the Bible tells us that exercise is of little profit and all foods are clean. So that's not the best application, even though it's a permissible application. And one of the reasons it's not the best application is because when folks talk about the body being a temple and they apply it to exercise or eating right or things of that sort, oftentimes they have in the back of their minds the kind of worldly body image and ideal body shape that disorder our relationship with the body in the first place. So we have to be careful with this temple language in verse 19 and how we apply it, especially if we're applying it to exercise or food choices. I think Paul's after something more deeper than that. I think his direct goal is to get us to see the body as God's temple, obviously, and the Holy Spirit living in us as a way of making certain things unthinkable. I mean, just utterly unthinkable, even repulsive. So in verses 15 and 16, he talks about, yeah, he can eat this food, he can do these things that would be convenient for or permissible for him, but wouldn't be convenient. And then he comes down again, he addresses sexual morality, and this is where he, he turns the screw, because what he really wants us to do is, is to so regard the body as holy that certain things are, are, as I said, just unthinkable and even repulsive to us. So let's go back to the temple analogy. Our congregation normally meets in a high school auditorium. That's what it is, Monday to Saturday. But on Sundays, at least in our minds, the, the space is transformed in our thinking into a, a church building. And when we're in the space, we don't, we don't behave like high school students. We're not rowdy, jumping over seats and things of that sort. And we tell our children to behave because they're, quote, in church. We speak with certain tones, but not loud and yelling and boisterous. We tend to be quieter because somehow, somewhere, quiet got associated with church. In other words, there are behaviors 
that we consider appropriate for church, and there are behaviors we consider inappropriate. And the more inappropriate, the more repulsed or upset we get if somebody does those things. This is what it means then to to treat our bodies as, as God's temple. We should have the same approach to our bodies as we have to a church building, another kind of house of worship, because our bodies are, in fact, the site of our worship and the residence of our God. So nothing should be done with, to, or in the body that would be inappropriate for a holy place of worship where the living God lives. This attitude to our body reorients us to God's rule and God's holy presence. So how do we develop that attitude? Well, I think we want to preach this to ourselves. I think we want to make this self-conscious and remind ourselves of it over and over and over again. God lives in us. I don't think any of us have thought that all the way down to the bottom and figured out all the implications of that. That, that an infinite God who is, who is pure and holy and beautiful beyond imagination lives in us. We are his temple. We are the place where he, our bodies, where he shows off his glory. Where he makes known the wonders of his name. Now, if that's going on in us, this kind of God-glorifying revelation of God himself, that's just some stuff we we can't do in our bodies or with our bodies, or to our bodies. And and the more out of place that thing is in the presence of God, the more unthinkable it should be to us to do it. So we want to think deeply on the fact that we are to treat our temples, our bodies, as the dwelling place of God. So that's four ways for us to begin reorienting our relationship to our bodies in a way that reflects God's design and God's rule and in a way that uh, unleashes God's um, reflection of himself uh, in our lives. We are to free the body from sin, to renew the mind. We are to present the body as a living sacrifice, and we are to regard the body as the temple of God. I hope you see what a gift your body is, Christian. I hope it causes you to wonder in awe that God has given you one and lives in it with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of the body. And we pray that you would help us, O Lord, to uh, sanctify ourselves, to free ourselves from sin. We pray you give us grace to feed upon your word, to renew our minds. We ask you, Father, if, if you wouldn't Uh, Also, Lord, by your mercy, uh, give us grace to present ourselves to you over and over, moment by moment, as living sacrifices that you find holy and acceptable. And we pray, O Lord, that you you would teach us to so regard our bodies as your temple, that we would, Lord, um, regard ourselves in your presence with us uh, as, as standing barefoot on holy ground. 
Lord, and we would stay far away from things that are unbecoming holy worship of you. Help us to worship you with our bodies, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.